Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of the CCRN Review Podcast. Today, we're going to be focusing our attention on the cardiovascular system. So in talking about the heart on the outside, if you were to look from the outside inward, of course, on the outside, you would have the pericardium. And the pericardium is the covering of the heart, if you will. And it's divided into two different layers. We have the visceral pericardium that kind of hugs the heart and surrounds the heart. And then we have the parietal pericardium, which is on the outside. It's what you see when you crack the chest, for example. You see the outside of the pericardium. Well, in between those two pericardial layers, we have a very thin film of fluid, about oh, 10 to 30 cc's of a serous fluid in between the two pericardial layers. The primary purpose of this fluid is to reduce friction between the two layers so that they don't, you know, grate over one another or rub over one another. So if you think about it and you think about a patient situation, let's take, for example, a renal patient that comes in with pericarditis, maybe due to, let's say, to uremic toxins, and they come in with pericarditis, sharp stabbing chest pain. Now, one of the things you're going to see the physician order is they're going to order an echo because one of the things that they're going to look for is if in the presence of that pericardial friction rub, if there's an accumulation of fluid in the pericardial sac, which we all know that if you have uh, excessive amount of uh, fluid in the pericardial sac, it can lead to cardiac tamponade. And that is in and of itself, its own little uh, section that we're going to be coming up to a little bit later on in the cardiovascular section. So again, the two pericardial layers should be able to move over one another without any friction. That's the purpose of the uh, fluid in between. And as we said, when there's an increased amount of fluid in the pericardial sac, uh, we identify that via echo and we describe that as being a pericardial effusion. Now that accumulation of fluid might indeed be an increased amount of serous fluid uh, due to inflammation, or it could be um, an accumulation of blood. Say, for example, the person that has um, cardiac tamponade related to a motor vehicle accident or, or a trauma to the chest. So again, pericarditis uh, is inflamed pericardial layers, going to lead to a pericardial friction rub. And really what we're going to see on the ECG is we're going to see all kinds of ST segment elevation all over the place, which we're going to talk to a little bit later. But as we talk about anatomy and physiology, I really like to bring it to the bedside. So it, it makes sense when you think about the guy in the bed and apply the anatomy and physiology and physical assessment findings. So I really enjoy trying to get that all tied together into a neat package. So working our way in then, um, we're done with the pericardial layers. Now, if we look at the actual layers of the heart, the outside of the heart is of course called the epicardium. And what's significant about the epicardium is that's where we find the coronary arteries. 
They are on the epicardial surface of the heart. And so really, those arteries have to send small little vessels, you know, inward toward the endocardium in order to feed the endocardium layer. So, you know, it's kind of funny because we always say when somebody has, you know, a coronary artery bypass grafting, they say open heart, the person has open heart surgery. Well, I don't know about that. It's, we're not really opening the heart. Um, unless we're having a valve or something else done, we're actually really working on the outside of the heart or the epicardial surface of the heart. So again, the significance is that that's where we find the coronary arteries. Now, when you talk about the middle layer of the heart muscle, the middle layer is known as the myocardium, myo, of course, meaning muscle. And if you were to take a look and compare the two sides of the heart, particularly the ventricles, and you'd look at the, the thickness of the myocardial layer of the left ventricle in comparison to the right ventricle, one of the things that you would find is that the, the left ventricle is much thicker. Um, so three to five times thicker than the right ventricle normally. And please keep in mind here, I'm using the word normally because we do have patient situations in which that right ventricle, uh, becomes hypertrophied and enlarged over time. Say for example, the person that has chronic pulmonary hypertension related to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, for example. In nursing school, we always called that person the blue bloater because they had an enlarged right ventricle and they had um, core pulmonal or heart failure related to a pulmonary etiology. But for all intents and purposes now, talking about normal anatomy and physiology, the Thickness of the left ventricle is three to five times thicker than is the right ventricle. When we talk about the endocardial layer, the endocardial layer is the innermost layer of the heart um, lined with endothelial cells, and it makes for a very smooth endocardial layer. Uh, We definitely don't want clotted adherence to the endocardial layer because, you know, that sets a person up for things like stroke or pulmonary embolism. So nice, smooth layer. The one thing I do want to uh, mention here is the fact that if you think about the coronaries being on the outside of the heart or the epicardial surface of the heart, they really have to send smaller vessels in toward the endocardium in order to feed it. So I guess when there's crunch on oxygen flow, maybe somebody has atherosclerotic plaque and there's a crunch on oxygen flow, the layer of the heart that's really going to suffer initially is that endocardium in most cases, because it's furthest away from blood flow, given the fact that the coronaries are located on the outside. Uh, This kind of, of patient or this kind of situation would cause a patient to present with a non-STEMI or non-ST segment elevation MI, for example. In the older days, and I certainly can speak to the older days, having been in practice for 37 years now, we used to say then that somebody with ST segment depression and a bump up in cardiac markers, we would say that that person has a subendo MI. That's not really a term that you hear used much any much anymore. It pretty much has been replaced with a non-STEMI or non-ST segment elevation MI. So that basically uh, kind of summarizes the layers of the heart, starting with the pericardium as an outermost covering, and then the epicardium, myocardium, and endocardial layers. So now let's take a look at the chambers. Let's just take a look at those. And let's start out with the atria. And the atria are typically thin-walled chambers. And really, when you think about their job description, like, okay, if you were an atrium, what would you do for a living? Well, you know, the atria are really reservoirs. So they collect and they contract. They collect, contract, collect, contract. That's what they do for a living. And so, you know, 
as a general rule, they do not have to be thick-walled chambers because they're simply collecting blood and that blood then, the vast majority of it, is going to just kind of plop down into the ventricles once the AV valves open during ventricular diastole. They, as a normal, you know, general rule, they don't have to work really hard. They, they really don't. Relax, contract, relax, contract. Now, a couple of things I want to throw in here, and one of those being, If you have a patient that has AV valve stenosis, so of course, we're talking here about the AV valves being the mitral and tricuspid valves. If you have somebody that has tricuspid stenosis or mitral stenosis, what's going to happen over time is that the atria will have to work harder to contract against the stenotic valve. Or you can look at it from the standpoint, if the patient had tricuspid or mitral regurge or insufficiency. Now that that atria, whether you're talking about the left side or the right side, is having to take on a greater load under higher pressure. So that's then going to cause enlargement. And one of the biggest pitfalls with atrial enlargement is it causes the patient to walk down the path to atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation. Now, here's a case in point. Just a few minutes ago, I talked a little bit about that blue bloater. And I said that the blue bloater is the person that has chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Typically, we're talking here about the CO2 retainer that because of that pulmonary hypertension is causing that right ventricle to hypertrophy over time. What happens over time to these people as well as is as the volume and pressure backs up into the right atrium and they undergo right atrial enlargement, it's very commonplace for them to go into atrial fibrillation. So that's why we see, for example, many patients with a big old right heart will go into atrial fibrillation. Let's talk left side. What about the person with mitral stenosis, mitral regurge, left atrial enlargement? We have a person that very much is set up for uh, atrial fibrillation as well. And, you know, atrial fibrillation has a whole host of complications to go along with it, including the fact that the mortality rate goes up for the patient And if left to themselves, in other words, no treatment, no anticoagulation, if just left to themselves, about 35% of patients with atrial fibrillation will stroke. And so um, that's not a good thing. And of course, that's why one of the reasons why when patients come in uh, with acute stroke, part of our diagnostic workup is also looking at what cardiac rhythm they're in and whether they're in atrial fibrillation. So to summarize then, the atrial really are collection chambers and they collect venous blood. So when you think about the right atrium, the right atrium collects the venous blood coming from the superior and inferior vena cava. Whereas over on the left side, the left side is um, collecting oxygenated blood via the pulmonary veins. And of course, they're coming from the lungs. And this is what, you know, makes you you feel kind of weird saying that a vein is is carrying oxygenated blood. But this is definitely one of the circumstances in the body when a vein is carrying oxygenated blood. And that is through the pulmonary venous system and up into uh, the left atrium. So moving on down, moving on down to the uh, ventricles now, we talked a bit about them before, uh, specifically with regard to the myocardium. And we said that over on the left side, as a general rule, the, the left heart is thicker than the right. And of course, you know, when you think about it, that left heart has to pump out it into systemic vascular resistance, which is really a a high pressure circuit, a high resistance circuit. And there is, of course, a quick down and dirty way you can find out what a person's SVR is, and that is look at their diastolic blood pressure. So the higher your diastolic blood pressure goes, the more you see 
that the the patient um, is having an increased workload on that left ventricle. And over time, that left ventricle can hypertrophy. So that's why we like to keep our, our patients' diastolic blood pressures down. In fact, you know, when I graduated from nursing school uh, in the early 80s, the line in the sand, if you will, for hypertension or what we would call hypertension, it was 140 over 90. And now you look at it and at 135 over 85, we're calling people hypertensive. Certainly uh, 130 over 80, we're saying pre-hypertensive. And, you know, you look in, in some tax and they'll go as low as 125 as pre-hypertensive. So we've lowered those numbers, realizing the workload that it, it puts on that left ventricle. So we say then that the left ventricle has to pump out against a high resistance circuit. And when you look at SVR, if you had a pulmonary artery catheter in your patient and you were looking at SVR, you would notice that that patient's SVR is about 800 to 1200 dynes. Now, if you compared that over to the right side, compare it with that normal right heart, the normal right heart pumps into a pretty low resistance circuit. Normally, the pulmonary vascular bed is a low resistance circuit. And so the right ventricle, it just doesn't need to be as thick and muscular as the left ventricle because it's ejecting down into a low resistance circuit. If you don't believe me here, take a look at SVR versus PVR. SVR being systemic vascular resistance and PVR being um, pulmonary vascular resistance. Normal SVR is about what, 800 to 1200? Normal PVR is less than 200. So just looking at normal values of our vascular resistance using hemodynamic monitoring, as we do, for example, the pulmonary artery catheter, we see that the left ventricle is having to eject against six times the resistance when compared to the right ventricle. So a whole lot of work going on. We are going to be studying heart failure coming up in, in a few episodes, and we will find that, as I mentioned earlier, as that right ventricle grows or hypertrophies as a compensatory response to increased pulmonary pressures, we will see that um, there is an imbalance now. Uh, we lose our normal balance in terms of the right being low pressure and the left being high pressure. And we'll talk about some of the implications of that in just a little while. So we have talked about the atria. We've talked about the ventricles. And now we need to take a look at the valves that separate them. So the, the two valves that are in between the atria and the ventricles, they're called the AV valves. Makes a whole lot of sense, right? AV, atrioventricular. So the AV valves are the mitral and tricuspid valve. So over on the right side, the AV valve is the tricuspid. Over on the left side, the valve is the bicuspid technically, but it was later renamed the mitral valve. So uh, those are our two AV valves that open and close together. So when you're looking at those valves and you just think about the pathway of blood flow, both of those AV valves are going to be open during ventricular diastole. And so that's why it is, guys, if people have you know, either mitral or tricuspid stenosis, they will wind up with a, um, they will wind up with a diastolic murmur. And why? Because think about it, during ventricular diastole, that's when fluid blood is moving from the atria down into the ventricles. So if we have AV valve stenosis, and there's resistance or impedance to that blood flow moving from atria to ventricles, we are going to hear 
a murmur of either mitral or tricuspid stenosis during ventricular diastole. Another thing that I just want to throw in here, because I know we do, you know, we obviously have a section that is designated to the physical exam. But what I want to throw in is that one of the ways that you can identify the difference between a tricuspid stenosis murmur and a bicuspid or mitral stenosis uh, murmur is to have the patient deeply inspire. What we will find is that as blood flow increases during inspiration to the heart, we will find that that diastolic murmur gets a little bit louder during inspiration and softer during exhalation. We're going to get more into murmurs and all that kind of stuff later when we talk about physical assessment. And then even later after that, when we start talking about valve dysfunction. But for right now, I just like to bring that into play so you can always make those correlations with the guy in the bed. Now, when we hear heart sounds, when we hear the normal S1, S2 heart sound, the S1 and S2 heart sounds are produced by valve closure. Now, I want you to think about this physiologically for a second. We said during ventricular diastole, the mitral and tricuspid valves they're both open. And that makes perfect sense since blood flow has to go from the atria down to the ventricles. Okay, we're good with that. That makes a whole lot of sense. Now, during ventricular systole, of course, the AV valves should not be open. They should be closed because we want forward movement of that blood out of the ventricles and into their corresponding great vessels. So when we talk about this, this closure of the AV valves is going to produce lub. Lub. Now that immediately precedes systole. So when you get the question, the test question that says, which of the following heart sounds correlates with the carotid upstroke? I want you to think about that for a second. When you feel the carotid upstroke or the carotid pulsation, you obviously feel that pulsation during ventricular systole, time when the AV valves should be closed. So the heart sound that correlates with the carotid upstroke or the carotid pulsation is when those AV valves snap shut and close or S1. Whenever I have somebody new at the bedside and they're listening to a heart, maybe I have a student at the bedside and the heart just sounds like a mess. You know, they don't know their love from their dub. And, you know, sometimes people, you listen to their hearts and it's hard to tell the difference between their loves and their dubs. One of the best ways to do it, guys, is just to take your hand and put it on your patient's carotid artery. Because And keep listening, keep listening to the heart, but put your hand on the patient's carotid artery because the sound that you hear that correlates with the pulsation that you feel, that is S1, that is love. So that is systole. And so let's say, for example, you hear somebody's heart and it sounds like a mess. It's like, I just can't wrap my head around what this heart's doing here, what these sounds are. And you're hearing a shh, 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 shh sound. And it's like, okay, I'm thinking that's a murmur. How would I know, guys, whether that's a systolic or diastolic murmur that I'm hearing? You're right. You would put your hand, your fingers on the patient's carotid, and you'd listen to that murmur. And if that murmur correlates with the carotid upstroke, you have a systolic murmur there. So using palpation as well as auscultation is going to really help you with your your diagnostic capability at that point. So those are the AV valves. Let's move on. Next place we need to go is to the semilunar valves. 
semilunar valves. And you know, they're kind of different when you look at the valves. When you look at the AV valves, the AV valves are made up of leaflets, whereas the um, semilunar valves, they are cusps. And so they look very different from one another. Semi-lunar, really, when you break it down, what does it stand for? Semi, half, lunar, the moon. Semi-lunar valve. The cusps of the valve look like a half moon type of shape. Now, when these valves close, they're going to produce dub they are obviously going to open immediately prior to ventricular systole. And so if you are a person, for example, that works in an ICU where you use an intraortic balloon pump, and we are going to be talking about that a little bit later when we talk about cardiogenic shock, you know that we sink the balloon in such a way that it will deflate immediately prior to the upstroke of systole. Okay, it will deflate immediately prior to the upstroke in systole, whereas it will inflate at the dichrotic notch of an arterial waveform. And that's right at the start, that's at the start of ventricular diastole. Now, what produces that dichrotic notch? Well, The dichrotic notch is produced by either the the pulmonic valve over on the right side or the aortic valve over on the left. Whenever you look at an arterial waveform, you will see systole, dichrotic notch, diastole. Okay, systole, dichrotic notch, diastole, except The one thing I do want to throw in here, guys, and I want you to keep in mind is the extent to which you're going to see a dichrotic notch is totally dependent upon the health of the valve. So if you have somebody that has a very stenotic aortic valve, for example, you're not going to see this nice, crisp, clean dichrotic notch because that particular valve is stenotic and has trouble closing. So S2 is the sound that you hear. That means that systole is over and the heart's going into diastole. So, and when I say the heart, of course, I'm meaning the the ventricles. We're going into ventricular filling. So when you take a look at or listen to heart tones, if you hear something between lub and dub, it's a systolic event. Because remember, lub correlates with the carotid upstroke and it means systole. And systole is going to wind up uh, extending all the way over until you hear dub, which means that what? The semilunars, which are the, um, which are the pulmonic on the right and the aortic on the left, okay? When they close, that means that the ventricles are going into diastole. So therefore, guys, if you have a murmur, let's say that sounds like this, lub-sh-dub, lub-sh-dub, lub-sh-dub. Well, it's between lub and dub. It is a systolic murmur. Then you have to ask yourself things like, is it harsh and so on? And we'll get into that a little bit later when we get into looking at actual heart sounds. But what if you hear well, guys, that is a diastolic murmur because it's found between S2 and the next S1. So what about extra sounds? The same thing. Plot them out. Where do they occur? And we'll be looking at extra sounds a little bit later as well. So to review for your valves here, guys, the AV valves are mitral on the left, tricuspid on the right, and they're found between the atria and the ventricles. The semilunar valves, semilunar half moon shaped valves 
On the right side, we have the pulmonic valve. The pulmonic valve is between the right ventral and the pulmonary artery. Whereas over on the left side, the um, aortic valve, you find between the left ventricle and the aorta, and they are called the semilunar valves. Now, the last thing that we are going to talk about in this section today is we're going to talk about the pathway of, of blood flow and the coronary arteries, and that will bring us to the end of episode three. I invite you after episode three to continue on when you're uh, ready to episode four that deals with things like electrophysiology and conduction. And from there, we'll get into hemodynamics. So getting into next the, the physiology. So let's talk a little bit and just kind of march our way through the pathway of blood th- blood flow. How does blood flow through the heart? Well, superior and inferior vena cava dump deoxygenated blood coming from the body into the right atrium. The right atrium then, from there, blood moves into the right ventricle. And of course, it crosses over the tricuspid valve in order to get there. So we go great vessels, superior and inferior vena cava into the right atrium through the tricuspid valve, which is open into the right ventricle. And then blood will move across the pulmonic valve out into the pulmonary arteries. The pulmonary artery has deoxygenated blood, as you know, even though it's called an artery, which kind of makes you feel weird. Like, you know, it really shouldn't be called an artery, but you know what, guys, it is what it is. It is called an artery. Um, so from the pulmonary artery, we work our way down to the pulmonary capillary bed, which meets up with the alveolus. And that's where oxygen exchange takes place. Now from there, we're headed up to the left side of the heart and we're going to go via the four pulmonary veins, the pulmonary venous system into the left atrium and left atrium now is the collector or the reservoir for oxygenated blood that's coming from the lungs. Blood then is going to move via or across, I should say, the mitral valve into the left ventricle, out the aortic valve, and into the aorta, and out to all the body tissues from there. It's really important to know this pathway of blood flow, guys, because, um, you know, if, if you always keep that in mind, it will help tie together why you see what you see in terms of hemodynamics, whether we're talking about hemodynamic waveforms or we're talking about hemodynamic numerical values uh, for, for your patient. So we've followed the blood through the heart. And now we're going to look at how the heart gets perfusion. Well, we have the coronary arteries. We did talk about the coronaries a little bit earlier. We said that the coronary arteries can be found on the epicardial surface of the heart and the coronary arteries provide blood flow, oxygenated blood flow. The thing that we have to keep in mind though, about those coronaries left and right is that they feed the heart or they receive oxygenated blood flow during ventricular diastole. And the reason for that is, guys, you know, the the heart's different from your brain, belly, and big toe because your heart gets perfused, gets its oxygenated blood flow during ventricular diastole, whereas your brain, your belly, and your big toe all get perfused when the ventricle contracts, so during ventricular systole. Now, why is that? Well, the reason that is, is because the openings to the right and left coronary artery are found within the cusps of the aortic valve. And if you think about it, if the openings to the coronaries are found within the cusps of the aortic valve, well, when the ventricle contracts, 
the valve cusps actually flop back. So during systole, when those cusps flop back, they will actually cover, block, if you will, the openings to the coronaries. So all this nice oxygenated blood flow goes scooching right out the left ventricle into the arch of the aorta. But now what happens? Well, S2, lub or closure of the semilunar valves, when the aortic valve closes, all that nice oxygen-rich blood that's out in the arch of the aorta can just kind of slide down into the openings to those coronaries found in the aortic valve cusps and can perfuse the coronary arteries during that time. Now, the clinical application of this becomes very apparent. Let's say, for example, you have somebody that has coronary artery disease and this person um, is exercising. Maybe we have the person in cardiac rehab, for example, and we get to a certain uh, met or a certain exercise equivalent for this patient and this patient starts having chest pain as his heart rate goes up. Well, the reason for that is, guys, is that as the patient puts a greater demand on the heart, depending upon the degree of atherosclerotic plaque, that will really determine the amount that that vessel can dilate in order to increase perfusion to the heart. So what we see then is that at a certain level, the patient starts developing um, chest pain as their heart rate goes up because we have that supply-demand imbalance. We don't have enough supply because the coronary can't dilate in response to need. In other words, the heart rate going up. So we really start to see this, you know, when you have somebody that has a heart rate that's, you know, 130s, 140s, 150s is climbing, and now this person starts to get a little short of breath and they're starting to have some chest pain, we have to think about that oxygen supply demand imbalance that's occurring as the heart rate goes up. And of course, we'll be studying this much more when we get into talking about hemodynamic monitoring and cardiac output. Now, for you and for me, um, hopefully we have some decent coronaries. If you put us on a treadmill and started us walking, the normal coronaries would dilate in order to feed the heart. It's funny because I, I get people in class that say, oh, I see. Thank you, Kay, for giving me this uh, excuse not to exercise. I mean, after all, I wouldn't want to raise up my heart rate and then wind up having chest pain. Well, I don't know. It doesn't really work like that, guys. That's only applicable if you are a person that has, for example, atherosclerotic disease. So important, very common test question that deals with coronary artery perfusion. And that is, when do the coronary arteries perfuse the heart muscle? And that is during ventricular diastole, guys, not systole. So let's start talking about the coronaries. We're going to work our way from left to right. When you start over on the left side, you have the left main. The left main, well, you know, if you look at... Uh, especially older books, uh, the left main is always called the widowmaker artery because the left main get, gives way to the LAD, left anterior descending coming down the front of the heart, as well as the left circumflex, which comes around the left lateral surface of the heart and feeds you know, the posterior wall to different extents in different people. In fact, in about 20 to 30% of the population, you know, that left circumflex that comes around the left lateral wall of the heart also provides for the majority of oxygen supply or blood supply to the posterior wall. Again, that is in 20 to 30% of the population. Most of the time, the posterior wall of the heart gets its perfusion from over on that right side. So as we said, the left main bifurcates into the LAD, left anterior descending, and circ, left circumflex. 
So let's start with the LAD, which comes right on down the front of the heart. So just as its name implies, guys, that the LAD, left anterior descending, supplies the anterior wall of the heart. So it stands to reason that if your LAD, your left anterior descending, is having a bad day, your anterior wall is going to have a bad day. And so those are the patients that come to our door with an anterior wall MI. Another little feature of the uh, LAD is that it really feeds a good chunk of blood flow into the septum which houses the bundle branches. In fact, guys, um, you know, when you think about it, if the LAD supplies the bundles, then if the LAD's having a bad day, your anterior wall's going to have a bad day. And if your anterior wall's going to have a bad day, your right and left bundle, they're going to have a bad day too. In fact, If you have a patient that presents with an anterior wall MI and they go on to develop bundle branch block, and I'm talking new bundle branch block here in the face of an acute MI, well, you're talking about somebody that has a higher mortality rate than somebody that does not develop a bundle branch block in the face of anterior wall MI. So um, that's something really to, to keep in mind. So if my patient has an anterior wall MI, the culprit coronary that I'm going to suspect is the LAD, I'm going to monitor them, you know, for heart failure because anterior wall, you know, those patients really can have issues with heart failure. And I'm going to monitor that patient for new onset of a bundle branch block, wide complex um, wide QRS complex type of situation. And we'll be getting into a review of these things when we start looking at electrophysiology and conduction. Let's turn our sights then over to the left circumflex, which is the other main division off the left main. Um, the left circumflex comes around the left lateral wall of the heart and feeds flow to varying extents to the posterior wall as well. Like we said, about 20 to 30% of people will receive posterior wall blood, blood supply primarily from the left circumflex. And that when you read a cardiac cath report, that person is described as being left dominant. Now, another thing about that circumflex, guys, is that the circ supplies blood flow to the sinus node in about, well, 45% of the population. So that's a little bit less than half. Now, who cares and why do we need to know that? Well, think about it for a second. If my patient comes in with a lateral wall MI, or I'm caring for somebody that develops lateral wall ischemia, if the lateral wall's having a bad day, it's probably because the circ's having a bad day. And if the circ's having a bad day, the sinus node is going to have a bad day 45% of the time. And what that means then is that 45% of your patients are going to have sinus nodal dysfunction. Now, think about this for a second. If you were a sinus node and you weren't getting enough perfusion, what would you do? Well, I I wouldn't work well, would you? I mean, I'd slow down. So now we're thinking and watching out for bradycardia in these people. Or if I'm not getting enough perfusion, I just might up and quit. And if I just up and quit, then somebody else has to take over as a backup mechanism or I'm going to die. So we know that when the sinus node mechanism no longer is controlling the show, we know that the backup to the sinus node is the AV node. So not only will we see bradycardia in these circumstances, but we will also uh, see perhaps a junctional escape rhythm taking over as a backup mechanism. So I want you in your mind to be able to walk through these things and say, you know what? My patient has 
ischemia over in the lateral wall. And we'll, we'll be talking later when we get to 12 lead as to how you identify that. But if I have some lateral wall ischemia, I know I've got a circ problem. And if I've got a circ problem, I'm going to really be on the lookout for Brady's with this patient. I am also going to look out for um, junctional rhythms. And I used to work with a cardiologist that called, you know, occlusion of the, uh, the circumflex, the great fibrillator, because so many people with occlusion of the left circumflex will go into V-fib. So just throwing that in there. So now we've talked about the, the left side of the heart. There's one thing I want to add though about that circ. The left circumflex in 10% of people, I know that's not like a huge number, the 10%, but in 10% of the people, the circumflex does supply the AV node as well. So what I can say to myself is if I'm having a lateral wall MI patient and I am highly suspicious of that left circumflex, then I also very need to be very mindful of that patient developing AV block because AV block can occur when the AV node is not getting perfused adequately. All right, let's set our sights on the right side and let's talk about the right coronary artery. The right coronary supplies the right atrium, some of the right ventricle, as well as the inferior surface of the left ventricle. And so when somebody has an inferior wall MI, the coronary artery that becomes the culprit for us is the RCA or right coronary artery. Now for most of us, like, oh, 70 to 80% of us, for most of us, that right coronary artery swings around inferiorly and swings around back and gives way to what's called that posterior descending coronary artery. That's in about, you know, 70 to 80% of us. And it, it supplies the posterior wall of the heart. That's why it's so common when we see patients coming in with inferior wall MI, it's very common to see or note that they have a posterior wall MI going right along with it because both the inferior and posterior walls are typically in most cases supplied by the RCA. That's why when you read a cardiac cath report, you'll notice that patients are described as being either right dominant or left dominant. And that actually describes which of the coronary networks are supplying the posterior wall or giving way to that posterior descending coronary that supplies the posterior wall. So, um, that's something really important to keep in mind. So let me just give you an example here to kind of hit this home for you. Let's say that I come in with an inferior wall MI and I'm taken to the cath lab. In that cath lab, they find that my vasculature is very left dominant, which means that the posterior wall of my heart is receiving blood flow from the left coronary network via the uh, left circumflex. But I came in with an inferior wall MI, but yet I'm left dominant. Can you all understand that I would have less myocardium at risk because my posterior wall is getting perfused by the circumflex, which is coming around posteriorly and giving way to that posterior descending coronary. Now, what if, however, in the cath lab, they find that I am right dominant. Here I am with an inferior wall MI. I am found to be right dominant. Now I want you to see I have a whole lot more myocardium at risk because the posterior wall is being uh, supplied by the right coronary artery. So now I'm going to be the type of person then to have a inferior posterior type of MI. So let's talk about conduction. That right coronary artery, guys, supplies the AV node in 90% of people. The AV node in 90% of people. 
So the way that that translates into clinical practice is that if I have an inferior wall MI, of course, I'm suspecting that it's the inferior, or excuse me, it's the right coronary artery that's the culprit. And if the right coronary is having a bad day, chances are 90% that I'm going to have AV nodal dysfunction, 90%. So I'm really hoping that my nurse is monitoring for that because I have a 90% chance of having AV block. Now, I want you to think about this. I just have a question for you, and that is what type of AV block is very commonly transient and also very commonly ischemia-induced. Take a moment and think about that for a second. What kind of AV block is typically transient and also typically ischemia-induced? Well, if you have said second-degree AV block type 1, or Winkybach, you are right on target. So a very commonly occurring uh, block in somebody with an inferior wall MI, very commonly occurring, very commonly ischemia-induced. Now, guys, I don't want you to take this and say, uh-oh, every time my patient has Winkybach, it must be because his heart's ischemic. I don't want you to, to draw that particular conclusion because it's not true. Sometimes we have elderly people that have uh, Winkybach or second-degree AV1, second-degree AV block type 1 just because of the presence of age-related calcification of the AV node. But... When we see new Winkybach in the presence of inferior wall MI, then we really do need to be thinking about an ischemia-induced AV block. Another thing about the, a, the um, right coronary artery is that it supplies the sinus node in 55% of people. Remember, just a few minutes ago, we said that the the sinus node is supplied by the left circumflex in about 45% of people, and that's very true. The other 55% get their sinus node supplied by the um, right coronary artery. And that's why we find, guys, that when patients come in with inferior wall MI, it's so commonplace to see that they're not only bradycardic, but very susceptible to varying degrees of AV block. So that is the coronary vasculature. And this actually is the end of episode three, the cardiovascular anatomy. Please join me for uh, episode four, which is going to be moving on with electrophysiology, conduction, and hemodynamics. If you have not already subscribed to my podcast, I would so much appreciate you uh, hitting the subscribe button. And I also would love it if you came and visited me on my website, which is khoppypresents.com. You will find some worksheets and crossword puzzles that will help, help you feel more solid in the information that is being presented in these podcasts. Thank you so much for your attention, everyone, and have a blessed day. Bye-bye.